Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing scholar, Dr. Victor Ray, to the guest chair today as we talk about his new book on critical race theory. Victor is an active public scholar, publishing commentary and outlets such as the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, and Boston Review. Victor's work has been funded by the Ford Foundation and the National Science Foundation. Currently, he is the F. Wendell Miller Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology and African American Studies at the University of Iowa and a non-resident fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Ray, welcome to Diversity Matters. Hey, thank you for having me. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. WH Consulting Firm provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. We take a holistic approach to diagnosing issues and offer customized solutions to fit clients' needs. Our goal is to help clients maximize their productivity and well-being and exploit untapped capabilities. Clients can be sure that all WH Consulting proposals are designed around the latest evidence-based management solutions. WH Consulting is proud to have obtained Minority Business Enterprise Certification by the state of New Jersey. For more information, find us online at www.whconsultingfirm.com. While I have appreciated and cited Victor's work for years now, I actually had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time just a year ago at the Harvard Business School Race, Gender, and Equity Initiative Conference that I've attended for years, but you were an invited keynote speaker just last year. And so after your talk, I remember saying to myself, like, I really got to get him on Diversity Matters. And so I'm so happy to learn that your book was coming out and the timing was just perfect with our season four recording. So I'm so happy that you agreed to be on this season. And so Victor, let's get started. All right, so I expect for us to talk about a lot of things on this episode, but specifically critical race theory, since you wrote a wonderful book about it. Just to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page, because we know there's a lot of things out there in the media. Can you just explain first a little bit about the history of critical race theory, what it is, and I guess even in this time period we're living in now, what critical race theory is it? I'll start with what it isn't. It isn't in children's books. It isn't diversity training. It isn't at your local school board, most likely, right? What it is, is critical race theory is a body of scholarship that started in the law, but ideas from it have spread to other disciplines like education, my discipline of sociology. The reason it started in the law was Derek Bell and a group of scholars such as Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado were trying to explain in the late 60s and early 70s sort of the backlash to the civil rights movement. So you had these profound changes in American society, the desegregation of schools, the desegregation of workplaces that were the results of literally decades of Black folks and their allies organizing to create a more equal United States. And one of the tools they used to do that was the law. They very effectively created a whole series of test cases that helped open up opportunity, and they were successful at getting 
legislation passed right through Congress, such as the Fair Housing Act, that created opportunity or that banned certain kinds of discrimination. So Derek Bell and his students were looking at the backlash to these movements from folks like Nixon and Reagan and saying, wait a minute, we thought the law could be liberatory and now it's being used sort of to beat back progress. And they wanted to explain why. And so they turned to the tools of a bunch of different disciplines, some sociology, some history, the work of folks like W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, even Dr. King, to explain what was happening. And they developed a critique of the law. And then, you know, ideas from critical race theory sort of spread beyond the law. So yeah, that's what it is. It, It tries to explain why racial inequality is so entrenched and so intractable in the United States and why progress is often real, but often temporary and deeply resisted by folks who claim to believe in equal opportunity. I really admire your research and respect it. So could you tell us what was a little bit of the motivation you had to get into the research that you do and what made you want to write this book? Sure. So there's a couple of questions there. I think my own personal experiences deeply shaped the kind of research that I do. So I am mixed race. My father's black, my mother's white, but very light skinned, can pass as white. And I had these experiences throughout my life of witnessing just like profoundly differential treatment between my dad and my brother and I. For instance, I open my book with the story of the police being caught on my uncle when I was two because my dark skinned black uncle had me at a parade. And someone called the police on us thinking that he had abducted me. And then, you know, I talk about other examples of the police being called on my dad for playing with me in the yard. So this kind of alerted me to differential treatment. And I didn't know I was going to be a sociologist studying this stuff at the time. But I think that that kind of experience would shape anyone's sort of understanding of the racial reality in the United States. And then I went to school at community college and I transferred to Vassar. And at Vassar, I took some classes on critical race theory. And it gave me a language to describe many of these experiences, right? So I learned about structural racism. I learned about sort of the idea of race being a social construction. And these made intuitive sense for me, right? That the kind of differential treatment that I saw my dad and other family members receive wasn't about sort of individuals not liking my dad. It was about banks being unwilling to lend, right? Jobs being unwilling to promote and sort of institutionalized disadvantage that affected my whole family or the social construction of race explained why someone who looked like me could still be categorized as black on a birth certificate and that there were laws designed to keep my parents from getting together and having me. And so critical race theory, when I was exposed to it, I was like, oh, this explains a lot of things I've seen and experienced. So that is sort of why I gravitated towards the theory. And then I think the reason that I wrote the book was, I mean, I was mad. (laughs) I was mad that there were these folks who were just lying about critical race theory all over the news, all over the media, and sort of targeting professors and scholars who are genuinely devoted to honestly reckoning with 
America's racial order and trying to fix problems that have been with us since before America became a republic, and that you had these folks who know nothing about race and racism in U.S. history just lying on the news and getting laws passed, banning books and banning sort of access to basic information and information that made my life better, explained sort of the contradictions that I saw around race in the U.S. I appreciate your sharing that and particularly sharing a little bit about your background, your personal background, as well as you explain your answer and how you came towards this research. So if you would like to, I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal background, right? You stated yourself like you are light enough so that you could pass for white. And how did those experiences kind of shape you growing up? I don't know your family. So you said you have siblings as well. Like, are you all on a spectrum where perhaps you may have been treated better than your siblings or worse than your siblings based on the shades that you all are? What were some maybe pivotal moments in your understanding of race as you grew up? This is a really interesting question, right? So I grew up in a small rural community in Pennsylvania that was mostly Black families, right? And so there was like my mom and another white woman were probably the only white women. But it was in a, in a county that was like only 2% Black. So it was these 10 or 15 families that were pretty isolated. And so I would say that I think there were certain things that were just night and day in terms of if it was like me and my mom, we just got treated one way that I did not get treated if I was with my brother or my dad or my grandfather. But another thing that I think was interesting about that, and you know, I don't have a comparison group, right? So in terms of that's the only place I grew up. So I don't know if this would have been different other places, but it was small enough that when I was in elementary school, people knew my family. Yeah, I probably got treated differently, but also people were knew who I was. And so I remember this example in which a white woman, you know, there was some debate happening at the school and a white woman like called my mom and asked my mom, you got to come to the PTA and tell them I'm not racist because I let my son play with your boys. And my mom was like, what? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here to vouch for you, right? So I think there were ways that I got treated differently. I think there were also ways in which that context things collapsed, right? Because people knew who my family was. I will say once I left home, I think my experiences and that of my brother are pretty different in terms of I don't get... So, you know, he'll occasionally call me and be like, dude, I got stopped by the cops and I was fearing for my life. or I was in LA and I tried to go in this apartment and this woman called security on me, even though I was going to visit my friend and I was just buzzing in, right? And so that kind of stuff does not happen to me. What does happen to me, especially I'm often in, I'm a professor, I'm often in predominantly white spaces, is that sometimes folks think they can bond through subtle racism. And so, you know, in my book, I talk about folks saying things to me, like when I was at Vassar, a student joking that the school should something like bulldoze the multicultural center and put in whites only parking, thinking that, you know, I would think that was funny. Or folks saying black people in that Mercedes, they must be drug dealers, right? Thinking that I would agree. So those are the kinds of experiences that I think I've had that might be a little different. Thank you for sharing those. I imagine those experiences would be a bit jarring as well, right? 
in terms of catching you off guard, perhaps sometimes, but also there's a response that you may be expected to, I guess, give back in those situations. But sometimes you just could be too exhausted to just keep dealing with it all the time. So like, how do you typically respond in those cases where people thinking that you are part of an in-group, but it's like, oh. I think it depends, right? So the two examples I just gave, I responded not well. So the like, let's bulldoze the multicultural center or those folks must be drug dealers. I responded not well. I confronted folks. Also think that from a perspective of safety and sort of mental self-preservation, there are times when you're exhausted, right? And you can't or you don't. I think it's important to have boundaries, right? If I don't respond to this, will I be letting myself down sort of around the principles or things I believe in, right? Or will I be putting myself or my family at risk? So one thing that I remember pretty clearly with my dad and my grandfather both was one time my mom and I went in this restaurant and they're like, yeah, we're getting your table. And then my dad and my grandfather walked in behind us and they're like, it's going to be a minute. And I was a teenager and probably more confrontational than I should have been. And I'm like, what's going on? This is out of line. We know what's happening. And my dad and my grandfather are like, calm down. And I'm like, why? And they're like, you're going to get us in more trouble than this is worth. Just they'll see us. We deal with this every day. You don't deal with this in the same way. You need to calm down, right? And I didn't get it at the time because I was a teenager. It's <laughs> like, so you got to fight this stuff, right? But now I understand that they were in that environment. They had a very different experience of the world than me. And they were concerned about safety in a way that I wasn't, right? And, you know, my grandfather grew up in, in the rural South, so he had a very different sort of conception. So I think for me, it's no sort of what you can take, evaluate your safety level and respond or not. But I tend to respond. Gotcha. Thank you for that. And so getting back to your work a little bit, some of your previous work, So seminal work was on racialized organizations, you know, this idea that organizations are not race neutral. And so you talk about that in some of your sociological work. And then in your book, you talk about this concept of whiteness as property. Can you explain these concepts to us and how it relates to the social dynamics that we experience now? My work on racialized organizations, one of the things that I was trying to say was oftentimes organizational theory, so when we think about sort of a school or a business place, folks treat it like it's race neutral, right? So what that means is sort of race shouldn't be a factor in who gets hired. Race shouldn't be a factor in where the store is located. Race shouldn't be a factor in who gets moved up within the store, right? Or within the business. And I think that that's just a fiction. If you look at the history of how schools, how workplaces, how corporations have been formed in the United States, they were sort of infused with concerns about race from the start. Who could be hired, who had sort of access to education, who had the ability to have a contract respected if they signed a contract, right? Who had legal protection of the law? All shape your ability to sort of start a workplace, right? Who had access to capital? And so that was one of the things that I was trying to do was say that this idea that 
race is something that people of color bring into organizations is just wrong, right? The way organizations are founded is always already sort of racial processes are already implicated in that founding and they're implicated in how they continue. The likelihood that an organization isn't going to survive depends on the race of the people who own the organization. And so I would point to the destruction of Black and Latino businesses during the early part of the pandemic as sort of recent evidence of this, right? The number of places, I think it was, I might not have the statistic right, but I think it was about two to three times the rate Black and Latino businesses failed during the pandemic because they lack access to the things that allow organizations to thrive. In terms of whiteness as property, this is an article from Cheryl Harris, a critical race theorist that is just like a classic, I think really brilliant article. And she, it's one of the articles that resonated with me when I was an undergrad at Vassar because she uses the example of her grandmother passing to get a job to talk about access to property in U.S. history, right? And how whiteness allowed folks to accumulate property and you often hear white folks say, like, or people say just, well, I worked hard for everything I had. And I'm like, yeah, you actually were allowed to work hard. Some folks didn't even have the opportunity to work hard, right? To earn things, right? So well, they work hard. It's just that they didn't have the ability to be in that track to earn those things. But everybody was working hard. <laughs> they were all working hard. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So they worked hard, but they didn't have the, the ability to work hard in a place that remunerated right. them for that hard work, right? Or that compensated them properly for that hard work. So whiteness as property is about sort of the historical limits on people of color having access to the ability to accumulate property and wealth in the United States. In my work on racialized orgs, I talk about this in terms of access to being hired, right? And I'd say that whiteness is a kind of credential that allows folks to move into organizations and move up organizations in a way that often appears neutral, but is deeply, deeply shaped by their racial identity or sometimes the perception of their racial identity, right? Right. Thank you for explaining that. And so as we turn to examine what we are witnessing and experiencing in our society today, we see the rise of authoritarianism, fascism, racism, and you know, this is a big question, right? <laughs> but how as a society do we deal with this? Do we grapple with this rise in all of these isms? So I don't have sort of a magic cure for this, but I think you organize where you are. You figure out something that you can do that's within your capacity. I won't say within your skills because we can learn new skills, right? So, but that you're interested in that's collective with other like-minded individuals and do it, right? And so when I think about, yes, you know, that's how they did it on the right. They organized, right? So these, this sort of like rising authoritarianism and rising fascism is because they organized to take over school boards. They organized to take over legislatures. They organized to overturn access to the ballot. And I think you fight it by organizing. So to be clear, I'm not saying that this fight is like equal. You got billionaires on one side and folks without sort of anywhere near those kinds of resources on the other. But I would also point to, you know, the history of some successful social movements in the U.S. to say that against really incredible odds, like 
good has won sometimes. And it's important to keep that in mind. Excellent. And so I like the fact that you explained the disparity in resources, because as I sit in despair some days, it seems like they're organizing. It's so easy, so easy and quickly for them. But I guess we all just have to sit back and reflect and to keep the optimism that our ancestors held. And, and despite the odds that they faced many times, you know, we did see some progress. And so I appreciate you sharing that and reminding even me about that, because sometimes you can really get down. Yeah, I get down. It's not that I don't get down. Just that, yeah, it's important to think about what you can do. And so speaking of getting down, you know, as I think about people like Governor DeSantis now, who, for all intents and purposes, his political star seems to be rising and he seems to be or will be a formidable, I don't know, opponent, you may say, you know, in this upcoming presidential election. And so he's clearly is waging this quote unquote war against critical race theory and just, I guess, diversity, equity, inclusion in general. It seems to be picking up more and more steam and power, unfortunately. And so what do you make of a people like Governor DeSantis? They seem to be doing on that side. What do I make of him? I think what he's doing is, I mean, <laughs> I think it's terrible, right? So he is looking very clearly towards authoritarian, this is him, not me, towards authoritarian leaders like Viktor Orban and saying that that is a model for the United States, right? In which they have control of sort of the media environment, they have control of the schools, and, you know, what you are allowed to think and do is shaped directly by the state. I think that that is terrifying under any circumstances. I think it's especially terrifying for a party that at least if we go by the last election, large portions of have given up on the very idea of democratic elections, right? So I think it's really doesn't bode well. In terms of what folks can do about it, I think it's incumbent upon folks to, again, organize where they can. As I said before, think about what they can do where they are to resist the kinds of things that DeSantis is doing, right? So, and I want to be clear, there are folks doing this, right? So there's folks organizing book drives to get the sort of banned books into people's hands. There's folks fighting back at universities, especially New College. There are folks doing that. And I think that those showing that they don't have unified support is important. All right. So, you know, you and I are both academics, and we are in this thing that people call the Ivory Tower, which they think is a bastion of liberalism and progressiveness. And I'm sure you and I both have numerous counterexamples to those types of narratives. So when we think about critical race theory, we also hear the terminology of woke or the concept of wokeness being used in a way that attempts to, at least in my estimation, delegitimize the word or turn it into something else that it's not. And so even in my discipline, there was a recent article in the Academy of Management Perspectives, one of our quote-unquote more respected journals in the field where a group of scholars attacked this concept of wokeness. And so again, in relation to critical race theory and wokeness, how do you view it and how do you see these connections, again, even in a quote-unquote progressive space of the academy? 
as soon as I hear someone use woke in a derogatory manner, I know I don't have to listen to anything that comes after sort of that invocation, right? So critical race theorists, one of the things that they've done for a very long time is analyze sort of racist dog whistles, right? So language that's used to delegitimize people of color in various ways. And so the classic example here is Reagan's notion of a quote-unquote welfare queens, right? And with woke, what they have done is reactionaries have taken a Black vernacular word that was used to talk about awareness of sort of social inequalities in the United States and attempted to delegitimize the word and therefore the concept of equality that's behind it, right? And delegitimize Black vernacular or Black slang in a way that also I think is just deeply, deeply racist. And I think it's amazing to me how quickly it happened, how quickly the mainstream media just used it as if this was a descriptive term without a sort of negative valence directed at people of color, right? So there's that part of it. I feel about folks trying to criticize the concept of woke the same way I feel about folks trying to criticize the concept of equal opportunity, because they're talking about the same thing. And it's very similar to the history of using terms like political correctness that allows folks to avoid what they're talking about, right? That article that you were talking about, I saw the summary in what Academy of Management Perspectives, and it was. I mean, the article just didn't make sense in terms of, one, it's claims about critical race theory, right? So the claim, for instance, that critical race theory is incendiary towards white folks. Well, it's not unless you're concerned or worried about folks pointing out inequality. And that's not about the theory. That is about you being uncomfortable with knowing about inequality, right? I just have no time for hearing folks use woke in a derogatory way. So history has taught us that whenever we have some degree of racial advancement, we are faced with sometimes extreme amount of backlash. And so we talked about backlash a little bit earlier in this episode. This is an awful conundrum for us, right? And so what we're experiencing now, many would say could be seen as the backlash from President Obama's election. Will we ever get to a point that we can make real racial progress without having to suffer from this, you know, insidious backlash? Is there a point in history that we could point to that we may, may have seen this glimpse of hope that we didn't get this racial backlash? So I use the term backlash in my writing, but I don't know if backlash, it's racism defending itself, right? So if we think about the response to President Obama's election and the sort of like rise in white nationalism, Trump using the birtherism conspiracy theory to get his campaign off the ground. I think it was unfortunate. I also think it was like largely predictable in terms of there are some folks in the United States who have always been opposed to racial equality and no matter the qualifications can never see a black man as qualified, right? Or as equal to or better than white folks. So all that is to say, I don't think that means we don't make racial progress. 
on occasion, right? So I would say the civil rights movement had a profound backlash, folks fighting back, I mean, literally murdering folks in order to stop racial progress. And yet the civil rights movement transformed American society in ways that are still being felt. But I think it's important. A lot of folks, when they think about racial inequality or they think about racial progress, they want an end point. And I think history doesn't work that way. I think it's just a constant fight to make things better and folks fighting, from my perspective, to make things worse. And sometimes you have a victory that you can institutionalize and make things better for a long period of time, and a lot of times you don't. And I think, you know, there are folks who would look at this and say that's pessimistic, and that's one of the the sort of knocks on critical race theory all the time is that it's pessimistic. And I don't think that's pessimistic. I think it's realistic. I think you look at sort of racial inequality in the United States and how long lasting it's been, I think what's not realistic is to say we're going to end that tomorrow. I think what's more realistic is to say we have a lot of problems and we need collective action, ongoing collective action, ongoing scholarship, ongoing sort of ways to target this inequality and come up with real lasting solutions while recognizing folks don't want those solutions to happen. There are people invested in the status quo. There are people invested in structural racism, and they're going to defend it. Got you. I really do appreciate you joining us today in the guest chair. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray. Your new book, Critical Race Theory, Why It Matters and Why You Should Care, you've certainly impressed upon us a variety of reasons of why we should care about it and why it matters. So I encourage everyone to go out and get your book. Thank you so much. And support the great work that you're doing. And I wish you continued success on all your future projects. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, WH Consulting Firm, LLC. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Mm -hmm.